it's uh, so good to be with you all this morning. Honestly, on behalf of Sammy and I, this is still pretty surreal. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful for this place. Uh, you know, I've been, been here nine years. So I've gone through a lot of transitions. I've seen this whole sanctuary and facility be built. And uh, we've seen a lot of people come and go. And uh, during that time, I've always said, I just want to go out in a blaze of anonymity. <laughs> but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So what I'm going to do is just preach from a passage that shows the bigness and greatness and glory of God so that you will forget about me this morning. So if you have a Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 6. It's on page 680. And um, as you're turning there, could you all just stand with me as we read God's word and show honor and respect and revere his word together. So Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, as we look at your word, we see this passage. And Lord, who is capable of even interpreting or preaching or reading this passage? God, it shows you in your bigness and in your glory and in your might. So God, give us ears to hear minds to understand, and hearts to perceive the glory of Christ, the glory of you, and all of your holiness. So show us great things from your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So if you're a believer in Christ, I'm sure that you can look back at periods of your life where God has used his word to specifically speak to you in a situation where it might have needed 
correction or conviction and his grace and his mercy. So that time in my life was when I was 19 years old. I was 19 years old. I grew up in the church. I knew the gospel. um, And I genuinely believed. The problem was my life didn't match the confessions that I had made. And so I was the guy in college who would be drunk at the party and talking to people about Jesus. And that's a problem, if you didn't get that. That's a problem there. And uh, so it was in my sophomore year of college that God drastically changed my life and turned my life around onto a path that I never expected. And so what God did was, he brought me back to him through the Bible. I had been reading through the book of Isaiah, and in the first few chapters of Isaiah, you see God is in the process of using Isaiah to preach judgment on Israel. And I was like, oh yeah, God is going to get them. He's going to swing the hammer. This is awesome. And so as Isaiah is preaching judgment to Jerusalem and to Israel, I was overlooking the many verses that God was preaching to me. But I couldn't get past Isaiah 6. The vision of God in his holy, heavenly courtroom, it caused me to be ruined, just like Isaiah was. And so God revealed to me his perfect holiness, convicted me of sin, and showed me incredible grace and mercy, and would eventually call me to ministry. And so for us this morning, when we see the holiness of God, that should cause us to turn to God for the atonement of our sins and for the direction of our future ministry. So I want to share with you my three prayers for South Shore Baptist Church as I'm transitioning out of this place. The first prayer, if you have notes, is I want you to grasp the holiness of God. To grasp the holiness of God. So we see this in verse 1. Isaiah sees the Lord. He writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah was a major prophet. And he's a major prophet, not because what he wrote is more important than the other prophets, but just because his was longer than the other prophets. And so his, his life as a prophet was difficult. He was, he, was speaking to, he was able to speak the word of God to people who would disagree and who wouldn't listen. It was a hard calling. And there was no retirement, no quitting, and you're always on call. And so Isaiah's vision, it happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Now King Uzziah, just by way of context, was a well-loved and prosperous king in Israel. He began ruling in Jerusalem at age 16, and he ruled for 52 years. So think about that. He was in power for 52 years. So can anyone tell me who the President of the United States was 52 years ago? Can anyone even do the math? to try to figure out what year that was, was Lyndon B. Johnson, in case you all failed trivia. So so Uzziah led a lot of great building projects in Jerusalem. He had great military success, but his story ends in tragedy because he ruled in that time until he tried to get into the holy place of God and to offer sacrifices as a priest. And what happened, and it, it's in Second Chronicles 26, as it, Uzziah is rebuked by priests, 
and he was struck by God with leprosy, and he died in disgrace and shame. And so Jerusalem is enduring this period of mourning a great king, a good king, with a very sad and tragic ending. And Isaiah has a vision of God enthroned in his heavenly courtroom, reigning as the true king and judge. So Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. And so Isaiah saw the true eternal king. So even though King Uzziah was dead, Isaiah saw another king, the true Lord of all. The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, and whose name is holy. And so he's able to gaze upon the throne of God and see the sovereign one. And so you might be here and and think, man, my life would be so much better if I could just see God. It would be so much easier to follow him. It would be so much easier to live for him. Brothers and sisters, we have something more certain than that. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter. We have the word of God, which is more sure and better than any great vision. Because it's through the word of God that the great visions of God's infinite glory and holiness are available to us in ways that we can understand and see. And so God's word, it is alive. And it produces faith in us. And so as we look at God's word, what happens is, we begin to become like Christ. We're transformed into his likeness. And so even though we can't see God like Isaiah did, we can behold God through his word and we can understand what that means for us and how to live for his glory. And so Isaiah describes this great vision that he sees of God on his throne. And for a moment, the chasm between God and man has been lifted. And he sees the Lord on his throne, high and exalted, with a massive robe. Do you see that in verse 1? The train of his robe filled the temple. So why is the robe so important here? Well, the robe is important because it shows just how massive God truly is. This little phrase describes the immensity of God. It's one of his attributes. That God is bigger than the entire universe. That God has marked out the heavens. He designed the universe and orders every galaxy with his word. So try to imagine that God in himself can contain our solar system and every other galaxy in himself with room to spare. That's how big God is. God is outside of all things, but present in all things and around all things. He's the the one who's high and lifted up, dwelling in eternity, and also the one who is with the lowly and contrite in heart. So God created everything with his word, and Jesus upholds everything with his word from Hebrews 1. And this is how big God is. And so often, I think so small of God. Don't you? And I, like, I wonder, God, can you change this world? Are you in control over what's going on in the news? And aren't those questions so bad? Like, of course. Of course God is in control. And the thing is, for us as believers, if you trust in Christ, over time, our view can shrink. It tends to shrink. Because sometimes we so focus on just one aspect of God 
that we forget everything else. And the result is this shrinking view of God. And as the shrinking view of God becomes a small God, then it's easy, it's natural for our idols and our ego and our sin to overtake our view of God. So how do we combat that? We have to gaze upon God in the fullness of His glory, in the fullness of His holiness, because God is so much bigger than we can even imagine. And this is what Isaiah sees. So look at verse 2 with me. Isaiah raises his glance to God on his throne, and he sees the creatures above God's throne. They're called the seraphs. And they serve God, and they praise God in this heavenly courtroom. And so despite their lofty status, they can't look directly at the holy God, so they cover their faces. And with another pair of wings, they cover their feet, because they're created beings. It makes you think of when Moses is standing at the burning bush, and God says, uh, take your sandals off, you're on holy ground. That's kind of the idea here, that that even the seraphs are created beings in the presence of a holy God. Look at what they sing. Look at verse 3. They sing this powerful song. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Our God is holy. He is completely different than us. And God's holiness is a combination of all of His perfections. And in Hebrew, the, the threefold repetition reveals the emphasis here. That God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is love, love, love. Although He is love, it says that He is holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is something that's difficult for us to understand because we are unholy. R.C. Sproul wrote an amazing book on the holiness of God. I would encourage you to read it uh, today as soon as you can. And he describes it as the transcendent separateness of God. And the idea is that God is above us and beyond us. Uh, that humanity cannot understand God. And the tendency that we have is to add God's holiness to this like list of all of his other attributes and make it just one, one among many others. But God is called holy in an all-encompassing way. God's love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His grace is a holy grace. And so all of God's actions are done through His holy character, His holy nature. And so God is beyond our understanding and His holiness shows that. And so verse 4 continues the scene. Look at verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Glorious holiness is about to shake Isaiah as it's shaking the whole place. And the seraphim, they called out to one another about the holiness of God, and the whole place shakes. And this vision impressed in Isaiah's mind, heart, and soul one thing, that God is holy. And so what's Isaiah's response to this earth shaking? Look at verse 5. He cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So just like the doors were shaking, so was Isaiah. 
He saw the reigning king of the universe before his very eyes, and all he can say is, woe is me. Oy vey, is what he says. Isaiah was undone. He was being unraveled at this vision of the holy God on his throne. And so Isaiah in that day, he's a respected prophet. He's a righteous man. But the moment that he caught a glimpse of the holy God, he was shattered. And he was exposed by the standard of true holiness and true righteousness. And I think for us, like we naturally have a tendency to, to say, yeah, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you know, I have issues inside. But I'm not as bad as that guy. But the second that we compare ourselves to the holy God who can stand, we would be undone just like Isaiah was. He was destroyed. He fell apart. He was ruined. And Isaiah, what does he say? He says that he's a man of unclean lips. And he lives among a people of unclean lips. What was Isaiah doing? What's his role? He's a prophet. What does he have to do to be a prophet? Speak. So when he says that his lips are unclean, it's ironic. He's the guy who's preaching judgment on those in Israel, and now he's preaching judgment and woe upon himself. Everyone in Israel must recognize their condition before God, even the prophet. So the contrast here is clear. You have the lips of Isaiah, the lips of the people who don't belong to God, and you have the lips of the seraphim who are praising God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why are the lips unclean? You might be asking. The mouth is an expression of the heart and mind and will. This is what Luke 6.45 says. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is an issue for all of us in the room. One place that I am constantly aware of my sinful and selfish heart is when I am stuck in traffic. I don't know if you're like that, but if you try to drive south on a day like today, oh man... And if you say, yeah, I don't really have an issue with traffic, next time you're in traffic, just try to count how many times you use the word idiot. That's at least my standard. And so there's a problem with that. There's a problem in my heart. And that it manifests itself in an ugly way. But thankfully, God reveals our sinful condition to us gradually so that we're not crushed. Isaiah in this passage is crushed and he was ruined because he saw God in his fullness and he saw himself in his fullness. His eyes had seen the king and he would never be the same. He saw the holiness of God and it was the first time that Isaiah understood who God was, which then allowed him to be able to understand who he was. And that is very applicable for us too. It's essential that we in this room grasp the holiness of God. Because when we do, we'll be able to see God for who He truly is, and then we see ourselves in light of His holiness and realize one thing, that we need His grace. We need His grace. And that's my second prayer for South Shore Baptists, that you would enjoy the grace of God. And we can see God's grace in verse 6 and 7. Read it with me. Then one of the seraphs 
flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so Isaiah is still trembling. His body is shaking at the sight of the holy God. He wanted to hide, but there was nowhere he could go. But what's encouraging for us this morning is that God doesn't show himself to us in order to crush us. He reveals himself to us in order to redeem us. God doesn't leave men in their broken state. The holy God is also a God of grace and a God of mercy. This is the mercy of God. Isaiah wasn't looking for it. He didn't deserve it. But God was gracious And isn't that our story? Isn't that our story? When we're not looking for grace and mercy, that God is gracious and merciful to us. And so it's through this earthquake and smoke that this seraph carries the red-hot coal from the altar of God to Isaiah. And the image compares the holiness of God to that of a fire. We know that fire can be a great source of blessing on a cold night, but we know that fire is also not easily contained. Like, I think um, we can look throughout the whole country, and at some point, there's usually a wildfire that's happening somewhere within the United States. Wildfires can destroy acres of land in an instant. But when that happens, it usually produces new life. And so fire fascinates us. I'm sure many of you can stare at a fire, like at a campfire, and just marvel at how beautiful it is, how cool it looks. But it's also kind of terrifying because we know that if we stick our hand in there, that our flesh would be singed. And so it is with the holiness of God. Hebrews 12 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. This is a fire of pure holiness, undefiled righteousness. This is why hell is described as a place of flames. The holiness of God is present there in its fullness. And in this passage, the fire devours the unrighteousness and the unholiness of Isaiah. The fiery coal touches the mouth of the prophet. And in that moment, the power of sin is broken. Isaiah is no longer lost because God has provided atonement for his sins and removed his guilt. And this scene, it's a sign of a true internal reality for us that when God takes away our sins and our guilt that we've carried for years, it's actually a heart-wrenching experience. Why is the removal of sin such a difficult process? Have you ever thought about that before? Well, it's difficult because it means... That we need to die to ourselves. Our arrogant self-sufficiency doesn't bow to God and it rejects God. This is what Isaiah had been preaching to Israel and now he finds that same pride and arrogance in his own heart. So have you ever had an ant come across your path? Like one of those black ants. And you, you're like, oh man, this ant is so annoying. It climbs on your skin. You're just like, oh, I've got to get rid of this. And so what do you do? You take your foot and you step on it as hard as you can, right? Then you lift your foot and you look at the ant and you're like, how is that thing still moving? 
Like, I just put my full weight on that ant, and it's still twitching and trying to, you know, run away and do its thing. So it takes a couple times before you can actually kill that ant. And in the same way, that's what it's like with our sinful nature of our self-sufficiency. It doesn't give up. And we're constantly faced with that sinful selfishness. And this is why it must be burned with fire so that the divine surgery of receiving this clean and pure and holy heart can take place. And so it's a painful process for Isaiah. I mean, a burning coal touched his lips. Like, I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Like, I get uncomfortable when my lips are chapped in the winter. But this was a memorable moment for Isaiah. He was never going to forget this. He felt the holy flame of God burning against his mouth. And this is a severe type of mercy. The sin and the guilt that were in his mouth and heart were being burned away. Isaiah was being refined by holy fire. His guilt was taken away and his sins were atoned for through pain. Through a painful process. We know that the punishment for sin is death. Death usually involves pain. So for us who believe in Jesus, we know that our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for through the pain of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where God provides atonement for the sins of his people. And so on the cross, Jesus is high and lifted up. The Holy One of God is high and lifted up on the cross where He atones for the sins of His people. The holiness of Jesus consumes our sins and they're taken away. Guilt and shame are removed. Atonement and forgiveness are accomplished through the resurrection. We have new life. And the grace of God, it comes to us. We receive it by faith and it completes us. Just like the mercy of God put Isaiah back together. So brothers and sisters, enjoy this wonderful grace of God. We've been redeemed by Christ. It's costly, but it's amazing. We can enjoy the benefits of Christ's sacrifice for us. And one of the biggest graces that we have as believers is His Word. We have His Word. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, just like Isaiah was burned with fire, with holy fire, the holy fire that we have is God's Word. And as we read it, it purifies us. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify sanctify me in your Word. Your Word is truth. And so, it shows us where our lives need to be redirected onto the grace and mercy of Christ. And it's the Word that allows us and enables us to live for God in every way. And as we live for God, He calls us into faithful ministry. And that's my third prayer for South Shore Baptist Church, is that you would fulfill faithful ministry for God. So look with me at verse 8. We'll see this faithful ministry for God. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. 
So God speaks, calls out to the heavenly host, who will go for us? And Isaiah goes. He volunteers. So put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. He's just seen God high and exalted on his throne. He believed that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by God's holiness. But instead of being crushed into oblivion, he receives the unwarranted grace and mercy of God and is cleansed of his sins. What else is he to do? Right? If that happens to you, what else would you do? Of course, he would go into service for God. Of course, you would go into service for God. R.C. Sproul compares Isaiah to Humpty Dumpty. thought it was funny. Because even though Isaiah was broken to pieces, God is able to put him back together and use him for his ministry purposes. So God took a man that was dirty and that had a sinful mouth and redeemed him and made him a prophet and spokesman for God. What does Isaiah do? He just listens. And then he offers himself to the Lord to be used in any way that God is asking. And so for us, all we need to do is listen to the voice of God when he speaks and offer ourselves for any type of ministry that God is calling us to. And so Jesus calls us, calls every believer to ministry. Everyone here in the room, not just missionaries or pastors or elders, everyone here in this room is called to the ministry of making disciples for Jesus. It's in the core DNA of a believer. It's multiplication. That's why I love the story that Sarah offered about her friend who's two months into being a believer and is already considering and praying about people that she's going to evangelize and disciple. A Christian is someone who invests in the spiritual health and well-being of someone else through two ways, evangelism and discipleship. A Christian is marked by love. And that love will be manifested and seen in their evangelism to those who don't know Christ and in helping other Christians grow in Christ. And so this word-centered ministry is the lifeblood to the church. That's the way to bring change to the church is through the word. Ephesians 4.11 tells us that it's up to the pastors and elders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is the disciple-making ministry. So this looks different for different people. Because like I said, not everyone is called to be a missionary or a pastor, but everyone is called to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Now you might think, I'm not a gifted evangelist. I'm not a disciple-maker. I can't do it. There's other people that have better gifts than me. And that might be true. Some people are just naturally evangelistic and naturally good at making disciples. But we have a call here, my friends. And the call is to grow in these gifts. God calls us ambassadors for Christ. And so if you you don't have this yet, you can't give what you don't have. And so if, if you don't have this heart yet, what I would encourage you to do is to see the holiness of Christ, to grasp Jesus and the fullness of who he is and 
to receive the grace and enjoy the grace that you've gotten in Christ. So we've gone from death in sins to life and joy in Christ. And this means that Jesus owns us. He owns our lives. And our lives, it's like a blank check. That's what Isaiah does here. Jesus dictates how we live. And so if you see the greatness of God, if you see him in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, then you'll be able to say with Isaiah, here am I, send me. Isaiah gives himself to whatever task God would give him. God told him to, in verse 9, God told Isaiah to go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So God tells Isaiah, you're going to go to a people who won't listen to you, and your preaching will make them hardened in their sin and unbelief. How does that sound? Like, who's signing up for that, right? This is a difficult task. Go be a missionary and have zero converts and face a lot of oppression. But this is what God is calling Isaiah to. His preaching would make people more adamant that they don't need to change, that they don't need a Savior, that they don't need to repent. And in our days, in this typical response to secular people, they have a misunderstanding of God's holiness and their sin and our sin, and they make little g gods of their own minds, resulting in their God being just like them, so that when they truly come in contact with the holy God of the universe, they can't comprehend His holiness and who He is. And so what do they say in turn? They say, well, I don't want a God like that. Charles Spurgeon, the, the faithful preacher in England, he, he said in one of his sermons that the same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. And the gospel can harden hearts towards unbelief, and it can melt hearts towards belief. But it wasn't just Isaiah who dealt with this. It wasn't just him. Even Jesus faced this reality in his ministry. Jesus entered into humanity and was rejected by sinful people. Each gospel writer includes Isaiah 6.10 in their gospel account and compares it to the ministry of Jesus. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 12. John chapter 12.37 is where John applies this verse to the ministry of Jesus. He writes, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they would still not believe in him. Then if you look down to verse 40, this is our verse. He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So Jesus, our Lord, the Holy One of God, faithfully preached healed people, performed miracles, and they still didn't believe. Their hearts were hardened, and John, in this passage, gives us a piece of biblical truth that should make us amazed. Who did Isaiah see on his throne? What was the subject of Isaiah's prophetic ministry? It was Jesus. Verse 41 of John 12 
Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. Isaiah saw the glory of Christ, spoke of Christ. He saw Jesus on His throne and preached the glories of Jesus. And as he preached this way, the people rejected Him because they rejected God. So look back to chapter 6 of Isaiah. We see verse 11. Isaiah cries out in dismay, How long, O Lord? How long is he going to have to do this? And the answer is in verse 12. God calls Isaiah to preach until the land is empty. God's just punishment for sin will be carried out until everything and everyone is gone. But there's a ray of hope at the end of verse 13. This phrase, the holy seed will be the stump in the land, shows us that God is not done with his people. Desolation is not the end of the story. Jesus is the holy seed who will grow from this stump. This is what Isaiah says in verse 1 of chapter 11. There's hope that remains in the justice of God. Judgment is never his last word. God doesn't leave Isaiah ruined in his sin. He gives mercy to atone for sins. And even though judgment has come upon his people, he's not done with them. He's not done with them. He will provide redemption in the forgiveness of sins that Jesus provides. And this is why, as a church, we preach Christ and Him crucified. God is not done with His people. And even though they reject Jesus a million times, the Gospel is powerful enough to bring repentance and conversion on the one millionth and one time. That's our Lord. And it's the Holy Spirit of God who does the work of God through this Word of God. And so... We remain faithful to the ministry of preaching Christ to the South Shore and beyond. We are God's ambassadors. And we're called to this great ministry and this great task of making believers and making disciples of Christ. And so Isaiah caught this glimpse of the King and he was changed forever. And this morning we got a glimpse of the holiness of our King. We were able to enjoy the grace of God together, and now we're called to fulfill this faithful ministry of Christ to the glory of God. And one day, we will see God in His holiness. We will. But the cross comes before the crown. So, in this passage from Isaiah 6, we've seen Jesus reigning in His heavenly courtroom. God is judging Isaiah. And Isaiah is found to be guilty in light of the holiness of God. But if you flip forward to John chapter 19, you see Jesus in the earthly courtroom before Pontius Pilate. And holy God is on judgment before mankind. The Roman soldiers, what do they do? They put a crown of thorns on Christ's head. They dress him in a purple robe. Compare that to Isaiah 6. And they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews. And they strike him with their fists. The Lord who created hands was getting punched by sinful people. Then Pilate takes him before the Jewish leaders and says, Behold the man. And instead instead of crying out, Holy, 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 like the seraphs did, They cry out in unison, crucify him. 
crucify him. And then Pilate brings him before the Jewish people. And Jesus stands before them. And what does Pilate say? Behold your king. Pilate didn't know what he was saying. But there was not a true word. And what did the people say? Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. It wasn't bad. If that wasn't bad enough, then they say, we have no king but Caesar. And so in that moment, the people rejected Jesus. They rejected the Holy One of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as described in Isaiah 6. They were blind to the truth. And so I plead with you, my friends, don't reject him who's speaking to you this morning. Don't reject King Jesus. Embrace King Jesus and believe in King Jesus. God calls us to to faith in Him. To faith in Him. And we do that in two ways. By repenting of sins, turning away from sins, and turning toward Christ and believing in Him and the fullness of what He did on the cross for us so that we can be saved by His grace and enjoy Him forever. That's what we live for. We live for Him. There's nothing greater than Christ. So let me pray as we close our time together. Lord God, we, we praise You for Your Word. We pray, God, that You would do the mighty work of calling people to Yourself. Lord, that You would help us to grasp the holiness of Christ, that we would be able to enjoy the grace and mercy of Jesus, and Lord, that we would fulfill this faithful ministry that You call us to, make disciples of all nations. And Lord, we're encouraged in this task because we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that You our King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of the universe. And it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.